Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and for today's episode, we're going to be in Richmond, Virginia, and we're speaking with Ethan Ballard, who is the museum curator at, here's the title, Richmond National Battlefield Park and Maggie L. Walker National Historic Site. So what we're going to be focusing on for today's episode is Maggie Walker National Historic Site. And it's this really amazing house. I mention it as being a Frankenstein house because it is just this cornucopia of additions and some strange rooms, but really beautiful place. And we also talk about Maggie Walker, who is a force of nature in American history. She was a strong black woman who was a civil rights activist, an advocate for racial progress for women and African Americans. She was a philanthropist. And as you hear Ethan say, she was an inspirational leader. We talk about her life history, the impacts that she made. And then the items that we're going to talk about is this adorable pucky puck size pocket bank. And then a graphotype and a dressograph and a mailing machine, a metered mailing machine. And so we kind of have this trio of things that are used to send out mail and then this really amazing little piece that collects dimes. So enjoy today's episode. And it's kind of exciting. We talked about this a little bit earlier when we first got started, but you look like a park ranger. I do. Well, thank you. (laughs) And you are dressed as a park ranger. You like... Right. You, you know, people have come up to you surprised that you're a museum curator. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you see me, I'm, I'm in, you know, the, the famous green and gray uniform. Uh, you know, I've got a badge. I've got a name tag. I've got our National Park Service emblem, which is the arrowhead on my left sleeve. And right. I look like I belong maybe in Shenandoah or uh, the Smoky Mountains. And, and folks do often forget that the National Park Service with over 400 units does include a lot of urban sites, a lot of historic sites, and with those, a lot of museums. I honestly didn't really know that until I, I, I we've never really thought about it before but since you brought it up I was like wow I never actually would have thought about the National Park Service being involved in curating museums <laughs> oh yeah absolutely and when you think of some of these um, these collections that, that folks again often don't even think of as national parks you have to remind them that like oh that's why the guy's dressed that way um, places like Thomas Edison's home and laboratories in Orange New Jersey or Ellis Island or the Statue of Liberty or Alcatraz or Independence Hall in, in uh, Philadelphia, the National Mall. Um, you know, a lot of these are not, you don't go camping in those places. These are not big outdoor recreation sites or natural history sites. These are often uh, cultural historic sites, sometimes purely indoor sites like the Maggie Walker site, um, which is, uh, as we just looked at, you know, a furnished house museum. And so we were just looking in there and I got to have the Grand Tour exclusive, which to be honest, is part of the reason why I started doing the podcast. Is why we've got all the cool, behind, the cool behind the scenes stuff. Totally. But the house is a Frankenstein house. Yes. But Maggie seems like like an amazing, amazing person, and she reminds me a lot of the Virginia Randolph, who we did another one, but right. with an, an entirely different, but also equally as amazing story. Yeah. Uh, well, Maggie Walker is important to not just the history of Richmond, not just Virginia, but but to our nation, and that's why she is recognized. This is the Maggie L. Walker National Historic Site. Not the city historic site, not a county historic site, not a state historic site, but she is quite nationally significant. And yet, a lot of folks have never heard of her. Um, I had not. No, and, and you're not alone. You know, I studied um, African American history when I was in college way back when, especially this time period, you know, post Civil War, 
to the Great Depression. And I'd never heard of Maggie Walker, yet she is a figure sort of synonymous with that time period once you get to know her. In a nutshell, Walker uh, is, is most renowned as a banker. She is a pioneering banker. She's the nation's first African-American female bank president. She earned that distinction when she chartered a bank, um, the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank, which she opened in 1903 as a bank here in Richmond for a local black you know, customer base. But she is way more than, quote, just a banker. Uh, Walker is a civil rights activist. She is an advocate for social progress for women and for African-Americans. She's an educator. She's a philanthropist. Um, and she's an inspiration. I think that's the thing that, that she was she was aware of in her own time. And it's, and it's something that uh, our National Park staff and especially our visitors pick up on is that she is not this isolated historic character that fits neatly in a little time capsule, but she's remarkably relevant. And without fail, our visitors, every, there's one in every group that, that, that leaves almost with a sense of, of shame for not knowing her story, that, but that's, that shame is quickly erased by, by a feeling of empowerment instead to say, I am glad I know her story and I'm going I'm I'm to learn from her and take this and run with it. So tell us more about, you know, we don't want to go too long about exact chronological sure. order of her life. Tell us, like, you know, yeah. where she was born, where she came from, yeah. and what she built herself into, because yeah. it's a pretty cool story. Right, right. So Maggie Walker spent her life in Richmond, Virginia. She was born in the last year of the American Civil War, uh, when Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. Walker was born in, in the summer, July 15th of 1864. Uh, she was born to young, teenage, uh, formerly enslaved African-American woman named Elizabeth Draper, who was working, to our understanding, as a paid house servant for a, uh, a unionist, actually a union spy and a union loyalist uh, named Elizabeth Van Lu, who was doing her part to undermine the Confederacy from her uh, large mansion at the outskirts of the, of the city or at the edge of, of, of downtown Richmond. And so Walker was born to this, um, to this young woman in, in 1864. Her biological father is a white man. He was an Irish immigrant who served the Confederacy as a soldier and later a nurse. He will have no part in raising Maggie Walker. But his major contribution, uh, other than his DNA, um, is, of course, his, his skin tone. If you look at images of Maggie Walker, she's remarkably fair-skinned, almost so much so that she could, quote, pass as a white person. Walker herself will never identify as a white person. She will always cast her lot with, with women and with African-Americans, doing her part to uplift that community instead. But, um, but she is going to grow up in Reconstruction-era Richmond. She's part of this unique first wave of African-Americans who, who, for the first time, unlike Walker's mother and her generation and the generations before her, are afforded opportunities for education. So Walker is a product of public school. She is going to attend Richmond's public school, starting as elementary, middle school, high school, with, a, with an extra year for uh, the Richmond Colored Normal School, where she gets the education and training to become a teacher. So she does not go on to college. That was uh, really unheard of at that time. But she does become a teacher, which is really the pinnacle of, of sort of the middle class accomplishment. She's going to teach middle school for three years, but only until she gets married. Because once she marries a fellow named Armstead Walker, she's forced to tender her job. Um, married women at that time, black or white, were not expected to teach. They had a new obligation to raise a family. Well, Walker did want a family, but she wanted to do more. She, she, she knew she had more in her. She wanted to contribute more to her community. And so she was eager to maintain a profession and eager to do all that she could to uplift her community. So what she's going to do is start to channel her efforts while also raising her family. She's going to channel her efforts into a fraternal organization known as the Independent Order of St. Luke. 
And so that's a group that Walker herself had joined as a teenager. It's a, it's a group that, it's a benevolent society. It was started uh, in this case uh, in 1867 up in Baltimore, Maryland by a woman named Mary Prout. And it started to expand into some of the Eastern seaboard so that by the time Walker was a, was a young girl, it had reached Richmond and she joined through her local church, First African Baptist Church. So there was essentially a national body with these local councils that might meet in a school or might meet in a church. And so she joins one called Good Idea Council Number 16, uh, which implies actually that it was probably the 16th council to be created for the Independent Order of St. Luke. So she joined as a teenager, kind of rose through the ranks eventually through local leadership, um, really starting, as I mentioned, after, after she was forced to resign from teaching, to focus her strengths on that. And really, by the time, by 1899, her trajectory is ascending at the time that the order itself is descending. And so at their annual convention in West Virginia in 1899, there was a lot of the, the old guard St. Luke's who were ready to, to call it a day. They said, hey, this was an organization that was begun right after the Civil War as an opportunity to generate funds and to create community, but especially to generate funds for proper Christian burials for a population, i.e. African-Americans, the formerly enslaved, that had no life savings for generations. Where was the, where was the wealth? Where were the savings? Where was the opportunity to give money to your, um, to your survivors? Where was even the reserve to give yourself a proper Christian burial when you died? So you have um, these burial societies, these mutual aid societies that spring up along the, uh, the South and East Coast. And, you know, if you want to look at it, well, by 1899, that's a couple generations removed from slavery. And there were those in the St. Luke's that, that thought, well, maybe we've served our purpose. You know, we're going into debt. We're losing membership. Maybe we could call it a day. And Walker said, au contraire. She says, why don't we shift gears instead and, and turn this into something much more? So she is elected in 1899 as head of this organization. She gets this big lofty title, the right worthy grand secretary of the independent order of the sons and daughters of St. Luke. Eventually she'll add another uh, another adjective in there or, the, or another noun into there. Uh, the right worthy grand council secretary treasurer of the independent order of the sons and daughters of St. Luke. That's so much. Yeah, Again. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful. Her, her business card was probably the size of this table. <laughs> they need um, like an acronym or something. I know, right? And so, so she's going to... Um, say, hey, wait, we've got this organizational structure. You know, we have a central body. We have communication network to these other to these other local branches, these councils. Why don't we instead take that organizational structure and use it for economic uplift, you know, to raise something beyond points of order is what she said, because I think by that point, there's a lot of sense of, okay, we're just having a meeting for the sake of a meeting. Now, there's also something to be said for that, right? This is the antithesis of slavery, where you can congregate with who you want to. You can meet in, in private with who you want to. So there is the sense of value in, in being part of a, of a community, part of an organization. And there's pride that goes with that. Whether you're in the St. Luke's or the True Reformers or the Knights of Pythias or one of these other groups that are out there, you, you are proud of that membership. But in terms of function, they were doing less and less by the, by the late 1890s. And so it's Walker who says two years later in her annual address in, in, in August of 1901, which she delivers just across the street from where we're standing. Uh, she delivers this address over at Third, Third Street Bethel AME Church. And she says, basically, this can be so much more. She says, why don't we take this organization and use it to put each other to work, you know, essentially, like create jobs. And we're going to do that by creating a bank, 
by creating a newspaper, by creating a department store, and by turning this organization, the IOSL, into really a competitive insurance agency. And so that's exactly what she's going to do. And immediately her stock is going to start rising uh, in the sense that she's going to catch national attention, the black press, and eventually the white press is going to pick up on her. And she's going to start evangelizing this organization and spreading the word to attract new membership, to build their, their coffers, which will be more money to pay out later for death claims or, or even sick benefits. And again, this is at a time when, when a lot of these uh, sort of insurance um, offerings are not available in this highly segregated environment, not available to African-Americans. And if you want to extend that into banking, well, even more so, you know, you have um, banks that were predominantly run, run by white bankers who are not going to lend to black customers, or they will lend at overly inflated insurance rates. Um, and so Walker is seeing all of this as an opportunity to put African American, uh, uh, her African American constituents to work, creating new jobs, and to recruiting new membership into those, uh, um, into those opportunities. And specifically, the thing that she's gonna drive towards is the economic empowerment of African American women. She says, that's what's mostly missing. You know, if you, can, if you can educate a man, you've educated a man. If you've educated a woman, you've educated a household. Well, the same thing goes for, for employment, basically, bringing more money, doubling money, potentially, into that household. And, and, and creating a path, an avenue for, for uplift, an avenue for something beyond menial labor, which was the, the more typical profession, you know, tobacco sorting or domestic service or other warehouse work that would have been typical um, at the turn of the century. And Walker's saying, no, 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 we can have middle class professions. You can be bankers, clerks, tellers, typewriters, stenographers. So she did all of these things. And, and you know, whenever you, I've, there's a video that you created that um, I'll provide a link to um, on the website. Yeah. And it's a really great video to watch. It's about 20 minutes and it tells a really good, you know, it tells a story that you're telling us now, you know, yeah. with, with the pictures because this is the podcast people. Right. But one thing that I remember that really blew me away was the fact that when she started and she took over, there was what, a thousand people? A, around a thousand adult members. There was a, there was a youth group too. And, and Walker was instrumental in actually building that youth group up into a much more organized body, the St. Luke Cadets, the juvenile division of the St. Luke's. But yeah, and they were in debt. You know, they, they didn't have they They didn't had like have 30 revenue. something dollars yeah. or, and, yeah. and they were really struggling. And then, you know, when she gets a hold of it and she turns it around, then, I mean, there how many, at the peak, how many people were a part of it? So eventually, right, so she is going to expand the organization through a relentless drive of advocacy. Uh, she's going to drive um, often, you know, herself, uh, but otherwise she's enlisting field recruiters to spread the word of this organization to, you know, further to the deep south, further to the north and further to the west. So that um, really at its peak enrollment um, in the 1920s, you had 100,000 members operating in 24 different states. And then basically did a campaign, right? They gathered together and they just drove around to different areas and you know publicly spoke about the, the benefits of this program. That's right. And, but it was sort of an endless campaign. It wasn't like, uh, okay, we're going to do it this year and then see how much we've how much we've accrued and we'll call it good. It, there was all Walker was always seeking an opportunity for expansion, and whether it was an anniversary, oh, the organization's celebrating its fifty years. Let's see if we can get you know. 50 new members per council, you know, something like that. Um, just any opportunity or even on her behalf where her other field organizers saying, it's Maggie Walker's birthday coming up. Let's give her a present of enlisting another thousand members this week or whatever it might be. So she knew that, you know, membership equaled equaled security, equaled wealth, um, you know, more folks paying into this organization uh, meant more, uh, more money to pay back out and more financial security. 
And this ties really closely in with her home that she has here that I get the privilege of touring. You can too if you just come to the museum. But hoping we're it, hoping we're opening soon to the public. Yeah, bar we're, we're, in, a, we're in a pandemic. Yeah, Obviously. yeah. We, so when that's over. Yeah. But in there, she she had it as a place where it was a public place where people could come and meet for these things that she was kickstarting up, right? Yeah, absolutely. In the sense that Walker used her home as um, as a bit of an, an example of her own accomplishment, right? That it was a bit of a public space. I, don't, I won't say that everyone had the key to the to the house, but certainly it was a place where the brain trust, sort of the brain trust or the vanguard of the black leadership could come and, and conduct meetings, whether it was just um, maybe some of the, the the deputies of her of her organization, or maybe it was leaders of other civil rights organizations, the National Association of Colored People, for instance, or the National Negro Business League. You know, leaders from those groups could come and, and have meetings with Walker right there. I mean, if you're coming to Richmond, which was considered the the Athens of the Negro race. Uh, this was a city renowned as the the birthplace of black capitalism. Here in Jackson Ward, the neighborhood where Walker lived and helped improve, was known as one of uh, the, the the Harlem of the South. It was known as one of the Black Wall Streets here on Second Street. And so, if you're going to visit Richmond and you're a mover and shaker in the black community, you're going to want to seek Maggie Walker's counsel. You're going to want to uh, perhaps brainstorm with her about ideas that you have. Maybe want to hear the ideas that she has. And so she certainly blended that that public and private life and, and, and perhaps no more so than in her house. And she was a very smart and educated woman. And she continued to learn on her own as well. And that's shown in this really adorable library that you guys have of hers. Yes. Yeah. So her Walker's library, which she established, you know, she moved, she she purchased her house in 1904. It had already been owned by uh, two different families uh, headed by African-American physicians. She's going to move into that house in 1905 with her family, which at that point included her mother, her husband, her two sons and her adopted daughter. Uh, Her sons eventually will have their own family, you know, bring their own children, uh, their wives and raise their children in the house. But one of the rooms that, that Walker will outfit uh, when she moves in in 1905, which was formerly the physician's exam room, she turns that into her library, her reading room, where on display you will see uh, anthologies, you know, whether it's the, the complete Mark Twain or the complete Shakespeare or episodic um, anthologies like the, the Journal of Negro History or the Mental Efficiency Series, you know, had it like self-improvement series, essentially, plus standalone volumes, whether it's prose or poetry from, from African-American writers and, and, and poets and authors, um, really surrounding herself with the tools she needed for, for inspiration. And uh, eventually we'll see that library start to, to capture her own accomplishments, you know, because that, because the black press and, and black writers, and again, even white writers are going to capture what Walker's doing and and memorialize her and commemorate her and put her into print. And, and you'll even see some of some books featuring her on those shelves. And throughout her life, I mean, you know, she starts off in this situation where it's a pretty poor situation, right? She is the daughter of an illiterate post-slave. Post mm-hmm. And she works her way up through this education, and then she gets married, and she has to take a small step back, but then she decides that that's not going to hold her back. She becomes incredibly ambitious and is able to continue working and still being a family a family matriarch, really. Right. But she wasn't without tragedy. That's right. Well, her whole her life is it's enough when you when you take a step back and kind of keep a tally of of all that she lived through. It's it's enough for me to want to throw in throw in the towel and call it quits. But it, it never seemed to fully stop Walker. It only emboldened her. And and if you want to start from the get go, her the stepfather, as I mentioned, her her biological father was a white man who didn't raise her. When her mother remarries an African-American man, he is killed. He's murdered when Walker is about 11 years old. He's killed when um, 
He was on his way back from work, meaning that Walker's eventually raised by a single mother along uh, with her, her half-brother. He's going to die of tuberculosis before I think he's um, in his 20s. Walker herself is going to suffer a lot of tragedy, specifically with the law surrounding her, her husband, Armstead Walker. So her husband was uh, also a prominent African-American businessman. He um, ran a brick contracting company and also uh, was a letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service for about 10 years. But he is mistaken as an intruder by uh, their eldest son, Russell Walker. And sadly, in 1915, he was shot and killed by Russell. Um, and so in a, in a split second, Walker has then lost her husband, the love of her life, her only husband uh, that she ever had. And next thing you know, her, her son, her eldest son, is on trial for his life. You know, you've got the tremendous guilt in that household. Russell himself is going to struggle with alcohol after that and eventually die at a very young age through, due to complications from drinking. Walker herself is going to be struggling physically with a condition that went undiagnosed for a long time, which is type 2 diabetes. Eventually, she will, after, after taking various tonics and elixirs and attempts at diet, you know, she finally does take insulin. Um, we do have some syringes in our, uh, in our collection here and the receipts for insulin from one of the nearby pharmacies in our archives. Um, but eventually she will lose her mobility from, from the waist down. Um, she will rely on, on a wheelchair and eventually succumb to, to diabetic gangrene when she dies in uh, December of 1934. But none of this stops her. None of this her stops her. entire life, no. even when she is sick and chair-ridden from diabetes, she's still doing work from her home. That's right. It seems to only strengthen her resolve. Now, we do have her diaries, and she records some very, very low, mom low moments, enough that she, she, she wants to to call it a day, but she doesn't. She's compelled by, by a bigger, a higher calling, so to speak. And she realizes that I think as long as she has a heartbeat, her calling is to uplift the black community and especially black women. And that that is, she's like, hey, if I can use a wheelchair, if I can stay and get a home office, then I can keep working. You know, I will, I'll continue to cut checks from my, from my desk at home. I'll continue to write speeches from my, from my library. And you know, with the help of my chauffeur, I can still go and give those speeches. I can still go to the office and check in on my, my office force. But she, as long as she's got a pulse, she's going to keep working, which she does till the day she dies. So she, by the, by the time she passed away, she was still the right worthy grand council secretary treasurer of the independent order of the sons and daughters of St. Luke. <laughs> Need a breath. And she was, by that point, the, um, the chair, chairman of the board of her bank, which had evolved into, the, into consolidated bank and trust. So she ended up kind of saving that situation because, you know, during the life of that bank, it has to uh, undergo some massive changes. Absolutely. And um, so um, you know, when Walker, remember, in 1901, she lays out this big plan for how to how to use the organization for, for economic uplift. And um, the, the keystone of that is creating the bank. So she creates the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. It's first going to be operated out of the first floor of her office building, the St. Luke Hall. Brand new construction she commissions a few blocks north of her home. Then eventually the bank will move into her second enterprise, which is the St. Luke Emporium. This is a general store, essentially, that is on Broad Street. Now, Broad Street, I'll try to give you a map of Richmond, but Broad Street, unlike Jackson Ward, which we talked about as a sort of city within a city, a very, uh, uh, almost quasi-independent, semi-autonomous African-American residential neighborhood, with a large, thriving commercial corridor, Second Street and and uh, First Street to some extent as well. 
So Jackson Ward is sort of synonymous with 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 black uh, businesses, black homes, black churches. Broad Street, on the other hand, is the main quote unquote white commercial corridor of Richmond. And it's Broad Street is really the boundary, uh, the separation between white Richmond and black Jackson Ward to the north. And so when Walker opens her emporium, which is this three story general store on Broad Street, 112 East Broad Street, she has it uh, staffed predominantly by African-American women, some African-American men, and even a few children. Um, she has African-American skin-toned uh, mannequins that are displaying merchandise. And on the back of the first floor is her, her second location for the bank. Uh, this ensures that any customers coming to do bank business might also pick up some merchandise. And likewise, if you're coming in to pick up perhaps a, um, a new hat or a new dress, uh, which could be made on site, uh, you're also reminded to save money, to, to put some away for, for a rainy day, let it accrue some interest. And so um, Walker builds that on, on Broad Street. It unfortunately only lasts for six years. Then the bank is the bank survives. The bank is going to move out of the Emporium address into its own purpose-built address, one block north, deeper into Jackson Ward. But as you alluded to, uh, the bank, which will, will survive, you know, first two decades of the 20th century just fine, is facing peril in um, in the late 1920s, as banks all over the United States are, with the the crash of the stock market and the beginning of the Great Depression. Now, Walker had already begun some conversations with the, the, the other two black banks that were in Richmond at this time. Richmond was already the home of the nation's first black bank, the True Reformers Bank. Um, so there, there were a handful of other black banks in, in, in Richmond in Maggie's time. But by, by the end of the 20s, the writing's on the wall. She is going to con, uh, sort of commence a, a series of conversations with the, with the other bank presidents to create a merger. And this is a, a, a bit of a process where it takes two years to eventually have all three of these banks merged into one. Uh, and that becomes Consolidated Bank and Trust. And so that is the bank that that, that Walker leaves uh, in the hands of her successors. And Consolidated Bank and Trust not only survives the Great Depression with those pooled resources, but it will continue all the way into the 21st century as the nation's longest continually run Black-owned bank. It is no longer a Black-owned bank. The building itself is still there, or excuse me, the, the 1970s version of the building is still there. Um, but it is a different bank now. But but to explain a little bit more too about the the need for that bank, um, you know, I talked about discriminatory practices towards black customers. But for Walker, she saw banking as this microcosm uh, of her philosophy to invest, uh, in some cases quite literally, in in your community to do what Walker said was to you know to buy black essentially, just like we might say buy locally or buy American made. Right? She is going to encourage you to if you can either start your own business or work for a black employer, then spend your money at a black business, put your savings or your uh, earnings into a black bank, let that money create interest that Walker can then pay out to, to other as, as startup capital for, for other entrepreneurs that might want to start their own business or to, as mortgages to help you buy a home, you know, in a time when home ownership uh, was, was often a, a major challenge and certainly not equally available to, to African-American consumers as it was to white, um, white home buyers. So all of this is a way to, to slowly but steadily build a black middle class, which is going to be pivotal. We often take it for granted when we look at the modern civil rights movement beginning in the 1950s. We often associate that with some of the, the key strategies other than the court battles 
uh, is the boycotts, the sit-ins, the strikes. Well, what good is any of that if you don't if you're not depriving someone else of money? If you're if you're boycotting a business, it's because you're depriving them of money. Well, how did you have money to begin with? You need to have a, a, a generated, uh, accrued accumulation of, of wealth to be a weapon to then to then hold back. So just as Walker spoke with on, you know on the one hand of economic uplift, economic empowerment, economic resistance is the other side of that, and she saw that as pivotal to the to to Jim Crow resistance, especially before. Um, the franchise is extended fully um, using using the education and the tools and the leadership that she had uh, that she was afforded that she had been exposed to um, whether through school or through her involvement with church you know harnessing those strengths to to lead her community and again not just here in Richmond what she does is is really part of a national movement yes her home is here yes her headquarters is here the only home address she'll ever have is Richmond Virginia. Um, but her story is amplified nationwide, and, and it's an example, whether it's to join her national organization, the IOSL, or it's to just follow her example, you know, invest in black businesses, start a black business, save your money in a black bank. Yeah, open a savings account. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. So it's not long after the the successful merger of Walker's Bank with the, the other two black banks here in Richmond that, that Walker will start to decline. As I mentioned, she was suffering from, from diabetes. And sadly, you know, all good things must come to an end. But she passes away on December 15th, 1934. And she'll die at home uh, in her bedroom, surrounded by, by her family and loved ones. And after her passing, the family will host a, a viewing um, or a bit of a wake, I suppose, in the, in the first floor, uh, in, the, in the parlor of the house. And then a massive funeral procession will commence from the front steps of the Walker home all the way down to her church, First African Baptist Church. I misspoke earlier. It's about 12 blocks east of the home. Uh, and the procession route was draped in black crepe paper. An African-American Boy Scout troop led the procession. Uh, standing room only at the service, black and white dignitaries came out to pay their respects. And after the service, Walker is interned at Evergreen Cemetery because even in death, Richmond practiced segregation. Uh, but it is there that she's reunited with, with her mother who had passed 12 years before her and also with her husband, Armstead, who um, tragically died in 1915. And she's also rejoins her son. And then soon after, her youngest son, Melvin, will, will join the family plot there. But Walker is then uh, revered, uh, you know, in, in certainly in her own lifetime and, and, and soon after. The city itself names a public, um, a theater after her, the Maggie Walker Theater. They name one of the high schools here, the Maggie Walker is segregated school, but they name uh, Richmond's newest black high school, the Maggie L. Walker High School. There's even a middle school in New York, uh, in, in Queens, that is named after Maggie Walker. And from that actually comes the items that we wanted to talk about today, if I'm not mistaken. So they just look like contraptions to me. <laughs> I have no idea exactly what they are. Yeah. But he cheated and didn't just pick two items. He picked a set, to be fair. That's right. That's but I right. get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I look at this as a bit of a suite. And when, you, you know, you asked, you, you, you reached me out of the blue, you, you, you gave me the premise of this, of this, pro, this podcast, and immediately I, I started thinking, well, okay, well, what is a podcast? It's a, it's a, it's a communication device, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an information exchange. Now, I could talk about uh, a major element that we have not talked about yet, which is Walker's 
establishment of a newspaper, the St. Luke Herald. Oh, I thought these came from the bank. They came nope. from the newspaper. They, no, they don't come from that either, actually. So, All right, so I'm just lost. Let me no, just be quiet and listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I so at first, I, when, I, when, when I was thinking of, of, of your invitation to participate in this, in this podcast, I, I was thinking of communication devices um, because, you know, we're so privileged now. You know, you listening to this right now, uh, listener at home, you know, you might be on a, on a smartphone or an iPad or you might be in your car, you know, you might be at your desk, but we're all able to get this information instantly at the tip of our fingers. Obviously, that was not the way in, in Maggie Walker's time. Telephones were around, but pretty uncommon. Uh, te- pre, you know, before the television age, obviously before the internet age. And when you're Maggie Walker and you are running a four-story office complex with over 60 employees, and your job is to communicate with 100,000 people that are spread across the country because you are a national leader. Um, How do you get the word out there? Well, Walker did have a, a, a newspaper. Part of her big strategy back in 1901 was to create a newspaper, and she did exactly that. She ran a weekly paper called the St. Luke Herald. Now, we have very few copies of the St. Luke Herald in our collection, and we have uh, even fewer artifacts from the printing press itself. But what I wanted to do instead was actually focus on some of the day-to-day machines that were in the St. Luke Hall that, that Walker's office staff used to communicate with the different councils and St. Luke members that were spread across the country. And so um, these bizarre looking contraptions really do look like some sort of antiquated torture equipment. I don't it's it does take some explanation to figure out what they are and it certainly makes you appreciate the ease in which we can mass communicate. If you're <laughs> if you're Maggie Walker and you're trying to reach 100,000 people all at once, it's going to take a little bit of effort. And it won't happen all at once. So Walker, you know, running a very competitive modern insurance agency, which is what the Independent Order of St. Luke becomes, you know, she needs to to reach the masses. And so she's going to need tools and equipment for mass communication. So what I've got here on display uh, are three pieces that are not on display in the house. This is, we're in collection storage now, and we do have an exhibit hall, and we've been able to loan these out to other museums from time to time. But I want to take this, this, uh, podcast opportunity as, as, an, as a chance to also show some stuff that the public doesn't typically see when they come on a tour here. Because the, the, the main attraction is, of course, our house museum. These were never in her home. In fact, these were not donated from her descendants the way that Walker's personal possessions were. These came from the remnants of the Independent Order of St. Luke, which survived up until the mid-1980s, long after Walker passed away. What we have here are three different pieces. Uh, this first item I want to show you is called a graphotype. Okay, and this is made, these are made by the Addressograph Company. It's from Chicago, Illinois. And what this thing does is use a, a clerk that would have worked um, under Walker's leadership, under her supervision at the St. Luke Hall, would have dialed in the name and address, one, one uh, letter and one digit at a time, of an individual member of the IOSL. So you could be a member here in Richmond and perhaps get news rather quickly, or you could be a member of the IOSL and live in Chicago and want the latest info, or you want to, if Walker's sending mass info out, uh, maybe a request, a a fundraising drive or uh, a membership drive, and she needs to reach you because you're the head of a small small chapter, she's going to need to do some mass mailings, right? Send them out all at once. So what you do, a clerk would one, again, one at a time, crank this little wooden dial, and then um, here, we're going to spell Ayla. We all know how to do that, right? So t- turn it to A, crank this hand crank. It's going to press the letter A from this, this uh, circular typewriter and 
emboss it into a little strip, a little metal plate. Uh, then we're going to crank it again to Y, um, then to L, and then to A. Keep cranking. Get your whole name, get your whole address in there. It'll be embossed, so it'll look completely reversed. But then that little plate, which kind of resembles a dog tag, is like an old military dog tag. You know, it's, it's just the name and address. That little thin tin strip would be mounted into a little cassette, basically, for lack of a better term, a little, a little metal plate that would then, and I'm going to grab one here at random, if I may. We have hundreds of these. Um, so, all right, I picked up one, and I'm just going to read it. It's always a bit of a challenge because you have to read it in reverse. But it looks like I have uh, Miss Leora Best of 506 Irvin Drive, Goldsboro, North Carolina. Okay, so that's just one. Imagine hundreds of these. These have all been created one at a time, but then they can be stacked. Essentially, these, um, these little metal plates with a, a zillion individual names and addresses are stacked into a little cartridge, like a, um, like a little hopper that's going to fit into the back of this next piece of equipment here, which is called the addressograph. So then you can quickly crank this. There's a foot-powered one. There's an electric one. This one's only a hand-operated one. But um, what it would do is, in very quick succession, you could you could crank this, and it's going to feed the plate right across this top strip here. You've got an inked ribbon, and then uh, you'll slide an envelope in there, and then it'll spit them out over here. One, two, three, four. So very quickly, you can have a stack of addressed mail um, that if you're sending out a newsletter or if you're sending out a you know some some form of mass communication, whatever it might be that week, you can have all your names and addresses already applied. But then what do you do? You got to get the thing out there, right? You got to get it uh, into the post and get it get it shipped. So that's our third piece of equipment that's part of this suite. And this is a Pitney Bowes Model A metered mailing machine. Now, uh, metered mail had only been approved by Congress in 1920. And right off the bat, the Pitney Bowes Corporation of, of Stanford, Connecticut, uh, was the, the first one to create, uh, what, what, what I think at that point was the Model M metered mail meter, which basically is preloaded with fixed uh, denomination. I think two cents was the first the first batch, but it's preloaded with fixed postage. That will then lock into place. Ours is missing it, but uh, the meter itself would be locked into the machine. But then your stack of pre-addressed envelopes that you've just cranked out with the addresser graph could be fed through this metal rod, this tray is going to push them into the teeth of the mailing machine, which is going to grab an envelope, feed it right past the meter, going to get its postage, it's going to get a date, it's then going to flip it out into this side where it's going to, the envelope is going to be uh, run past this brush, if you see that there, which is held just beneath this reservoir of adhesive. So it's going to then be sealed. And you can then you know stack them up there, give them to your letter carrier, and away they go. But this, of course, is an opportunity to do greater, greater efficiency, first of all. It's an opportunity to, that Walker has to employ more African-Americans doing work in-house as opposed to you know, outsourcing this to the post office itself. And Walker was very keen on this. You know, we again we said, oh, this is all very antiquated looking material, but this is actually state of the art. You know, brand new. She gets the Model A, the very first edition of this machine. Walker said herself, uh, actually even earlier in 1909, Walker said, "Does the wheels of progress, intelligence, and innovation are steadily rolling in the land of darkness and ignorance?" And at the dawn of the 20th century, 
The man or woman who has the brains and uses them is the man or woman who succeeds. So I think she's keen on getting whatever the latest is and knowing that the women that are using this, and again, I say women, it was predominantly women who worked with Walker um, that, that she employed in her St. Luke Hall. This is the antithesis of their, of their other options for employment in Richmond. You know, at the turn of the century, when Walker rose to power, um, the most common profession for African-American women was menial jobs, work that, that required no education, that offered no chance for education, that certainly expected no chance of, of advancement. You know, folks really like, like her mother and, and her generation, um, working as, as menial servants, you know, working as domestics, working as cooks and cleaners, uh, working in tobacco factories, sorting tobacco leaves, just grunt work as opposed to polished, literate Again, upper or excuse me, middle class professions um, that that did offer a chance for for advancement and did op- offer an opportunity for for education. In fact, we have a great anecdote from an old oral history that was conducted with a former clerk who had worked in in the St. Luke Hall with Maggie Walker. She was only about nineteen when she was working there, and the interviewer uh, back in the nineteen eighties was asking this person to think back, you know, explain a little bit about Walker's dynamic in the office. And she said, well, you know, she could be pretty tough and, and she would call you out at times. But um, this, this former employee remembered this, this, this episode that I thought is really uh, quite, quite revealing of Walker's philosophy, where this clerk was called into Walker's office. And boy, you can imagine her trembling, right? You know, Maggie Walker, big, powerful woman, said, come in here. So she comes into the office. She's the, the clerk is getting chewed out from misspelling a word in a transcript that she was tasked with, with, with writing. And she said, not only did I not know how to spell the word, I'd never heard the word. The word was idiosyncrasy. And so Walker said, see that door in my office? It is always open. And you see what's on my desk? That's a dictionary. So you have no excuse when you don't know a word to ever not come in here and learn that word. And I just think that embodies everything that Walker was about. You know, she had high standards, but she wanted to give you that chance to, to learn for yourself and, and to improve yourself. So in part of continuing on with our artifacts that we have here, I'll show a video mm-hmm. of these things so you can kind of get a better idea of how they are in action. So check that out in the notes below. But we have another thing that she did where she was just continuing to try to uplift and create funds. And I haven't seen these before, and I'm really excited to see what the heck they are. So let's check those out, too. Sure thing. So I already cheated once. You asked me to pick two, and I started with actually four because I had the, the suite of those three pieces of machinery plus the big stack of, of the, the, um, the actual name tags. But for something completely different, um, yet perhaps not that different, this is a device that I'm going to show you here that I think really encapsulates everything that Walker was about in the palm of your hand. And literally, this, this fits in the palm of your hand. This is a small bank that we've often called just a pocket bank it's you know a little bit smaller than a hockey puck just about as as thick as a hockey puck but this is actually a fundraising device it's like a collecting plate almost it's a little collecting device for one of walker's initiatives that she launched in 1927 called the educational loan fund so this pocket bank this little circular disc on the on the uh, surface of it it's got walker's name and her title Rightworthy, or it says RWG Sec Trej. We know that to be Rightworthy Grand Council, Secretary Treasurer of the Independent Order of St. Luke, Richmond, Virginia. And there's her face emblazoned on this little metal plate. She was fond of long titles. She was fond of long titles, <laughs> and she's also fond of using her image um, sort of as, as a proxy for the organization itself. 
you know, it, I think it's a reminder uh, to folks that, okay, this is who this person is. This is what she looks like. She's a woman. I can achieve this. I can do this. But she will often use her success story, her life story as inspiration for others. And that's key for her. So this so this bank on the front, it's got her name and in, 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 in picture. And on the back, tells us a little bit more. RWG, right where the Grand Council, Independent Order of St. Luke Educational Loan Fund. So what this is, if you see on the front, there's a little bit of little counter there that's at zero now, and then there's a slot that's only big enough for a dime. So what she did to kickstart the endowment for this educational loan fund, to give basically student loans for African-American students wishing to finish their education, she needed a, a startup endowment, a startup capital. So she issued, she ordered 2,000 of these from a company in Chicago. They were uh, the Chicago Thrift Company. She orders 2,000 of these banks. They're going to be sent to her headquarters here in Richmond at the St. Luke Hall and then issued to all the different councils out there in the country. Maybe not all the councils, but at least for starters, 2,000. There's a little slot there big enough for a dime, and there's a little counter that'll click up to 50 once it's full of 50 dimes. So then you've got $5.00. The council was then to mail it back to Richmond, where it would then go into this endowment for the Educational Loan Fund. Then students were required to apply for those loans. Those loans could be up to $300. They were required to be paid back in only 10 months at a 6% interest. But in our archives, we have some of these applications it's, this is pre-FAFSA, of course, uh, for those of you who have been through that process for, for student loans. But basically, it's, it's, it's narrative-driven. Tell us a story. Why do you need this money? And it's so sweet. Sometimes it's a student needing to, to finish their last year of college. Or sometimes it's a student that needs a private tutor. Or even in one case, a, a grandmother who is writing on behalf of her grandchild wishing to uh, take summer music lessons. And so again, they could request up to $300 that had to be repaid with 6% interest uh, or within 10 months. But I, I did have another example of one that we that is not in our collection. This is from some other bank, and it was probably more of a personal savings bank. You know, you fill it with $5, you bring it to the bank and deposit it. But I wanted to show it to you only because we can open it up and you can see how it works. There's those 50 little teeth that would click, click, click. Once you put that dime in there and the counter will go on up. And so the ones that she gave out to the council members... Mm-hmm. Was it just for one of them to keep in their pocket at all times, or was it a collection of them? So every time they had a council meeting, then they would ask for dimes, and everybody would put their dimes in. That's a great question. I don't know the answer. I don't know if it... My hunch is that it would have been um, sort of like this campaign where... And, and I don't have those those letters. I, I, you know, As you can imagine, a lot of our archives have the incoming correspondence, not as much as the outgoing. Um, my understanding, or sort of the way I, I imagined it being, is that, okay, let's say if Ayla Anderson is in charge of you know, uh, the Feel Good Council number 75 in um, Alexandria, that's made up, of course, that doesn't exist, that, uh, you know, you would be sent this, maybe at your next council meeting, you just pass it around. Be like, let's try to fill this. We're trying to raise money for the headquarters. It's going to this educational loan fund. As soon as you get your fi- your 50 dimes in there, your $5, you send it back. That's sort of like passing the hat, a collection plate at church, that kind of thing. You know, it's really fun. I love this this bank specifically because, you know, it encapsulates so much of Walker's essence, right? It's finance, it's philanthropy, it's inspiration, it's education and uplift. It's all of that in one and, and uh, innovation. It's all there, right, in this one little device. And as a teaching tool for us, here we are, we're a public institution, we run a museum, we want folks to be able to see it, and it's so compelling. You just want to hold the thing, right? As we both know, you can't hold uh, museum objects, you know, unless you're trained and have right gloves and everything. 
And that's depriving a lot of learners because we don't all learn the same way. Some people don't learn just by looking at an object at a distance through a piece of plexiglass. Some uh, learners are visually impaired or blind, and some just need a tactile experience. And so a few years ago, we partnered with Virginia Commonwealth University, one of the, the, uh, the big the big campus, the big college that's here in town. And um, they have a digital curation lab where they did a 3D model, uh, or excuse me, they then printed, um, you know, life-size version of these banks, which could then be painted. I then put fishing weights in there to equal the, 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 the exact weight of 50 dimes. And now, uh, if we're giving an education program, you know, we can actually pass these around. Students can hold them, feel a little bit more connected to history, even though they're aware they're, they're holding a reproduction. That is very, very cool. I definitely know what you mean when you say that you want to hold them in your hands because it's yeah. been very, very difficult for me to resist grabbing them. I oh, have because yeah. I would never break that yeah. level of professionalism. Right. But they just look so handy. Yes, they, they do indeed. I just want to put yeah. some dimes in there. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll tell you what. Why don't, since this one is not uh, an original, and I don't mind, you can be oh, my guest. I can put a dime Put some in? dimes in there and I'll fish them out later. Can, is it okay if I grab it? No, go for it. Yeah. Oh. So listeners, this is not the original cataloged item. This one is a, an original, but is not the Walker piece that is cataloged. This is from a different bank, just made by the same manufacturer. You should be able to, there Oh, go. snap, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the counter, I don't know if you saw it, was yeah, at 32 it a second over. ago. Is it at 33? So it's working. Yeah, yeah throw that ahead, is throw perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Thank you. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Now, the ne- it would be fun for educational purposes if the next step we do is not just the three-dimensional, uh, the 3D model, which is, you know, printed with, you know, nylon string, essentially. <laughs> you know, that is cool. It's the same size. It's got the shape. It's got the weight. It's got the images on it, but it doesn't function. So it would be fun to, to actually reproduce the, the bank itself and let people use it. Just out of curiosity, are any of those like made anymore just for like novelty items? So I'll tell you what, uh, I, I don't know. And, and some folks have talked about it, but these I, I bought on eBay, actually. No um, way. Yeah. And, and go figure, right? Because remember, she made 2000 of those. Uh, yeah. to sh- and so where are they? You know, collectors love little things like that. Um, so that's a good a good market is looking in the collector's market for, for um, little items like that. Well, thank you so much for sharing Maggie Walker's story and these really cool items that you have. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs>